This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. The Clearing is a show about crime and the trauma that can result from crime. It may not be suitable for all audiences. Uh, you, you work for a fellow... Uh, you're refurbishing a couple of houses that he had. A few months ago, I got access to this recording. It was made by two Wisconsin cops. But anyway, uh, the, uh, what, we're, what we're following up on is that uh, there was uh, two teenagers, the guy and the girl, that disappeared from the Concord house one night. The Concord house. Yeah. These cops have driven down from rural Wisconsin to a mobile home park in Louisville, Kentucky, to talk to this suspect in a double homicide that's gone unsolved for 30 years. His wife is there, too. Concord House. Don't look at me. I was homeless at the time. I don't even know what the Concord House is. I was going to say, what is the Concord House? The guy's name is Edward Wayne Edwards. Your last name is Edwards. Right. Tell me something. I'm curious. Uh, How in the world did you end up... I get involved in it, you guys coming here, whatever. This is The Clearing. I'm Josh Dean. Episode 1, Hunting Season. So in order to explain how these cops ended up at that trailer, 430 miles outside their jurisdiction... I need to take you to a living room in Northeast Ohio, on a country road a short drive from Lake Erie, to meet a woman I've spent a lot of time with over the past three years, Ed Edwards' oldest daughter, April Bellaccio. He traveled the United States when he was younger, and as we as a family, we kind of followed his same path. We went to places that he had already lived. April's the oldest of the five Edwards kids. She's 50 now, and her place is immaculate. She vacuums so much that you can see her footprints in her plush carpet. Socks only, please. And it smells good. There's always a seasonal fragrance in the air. As tidy as April's house is, her childhood is the complete opposite. Even after all this time talking to her, I still have trouble keeping it straight. Well, I started out in Akron, Ohio. Then we moved to Doylestown, Ohio. From Doylestown, it was Ocala, Florida. And then a short little stay in Arizona then on to um, Brighton, Colorado for a year, on to Watertown, Wisconsin for just a couple months. After Watertown, Wisconsin, it was Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania for a year. April's known for a long time, for decades, that her dad was a bad guy. Before she was born, he'd done time in two maximum security prisons for armed robbery. That first life of his wasn't a secret. He wrote a book about it. It's called Metamorphosis of a Criminal, When April was little, he supported the family by touring around, telling his story of redemption to church groups and high schools and police academies. But she also knew he couldn't hold down a job. He was absent for long periods, and he kept making the family pick up what few things they had and move, with no warning. 
after Pittsburgh, it was Slippery Rock for a few months. That's when he burnt down the other house, was running from the law, left in the middle of the night, ended up in Atlanta, Georgia. Came back to Slippery Rock, Pennsylvania. April says that she and her siblings watched their father lie and steal, and lie about stealing. He'd shoplift right in front of them, then swear he'd done nothing. He burned a house twice, because the first time the insurance company didn't rule it a total loss. And he had a terrible temper. April says they all suffered abuse at his hands. As soon as she graduated high school, April moved out of the family home, then in Burton, Ohio. She got married at 21, had three kids. She tried very hard, she told me, to bury the memories of her dad and her childhood, to just focus on her own life. By 2009, she had basically no relationship with him anymore. But memories would surface unexpectedly, often at night. April's never slept well. And back in 2009, the insomnia was worse than ever. She was tortured by the idea that she was suppressing things, things her father may have done. She'd lie awake and try to remember all the places they lived. And then she'd get out of bed, grab her laptop, and start Googling those places, looking for unsolved crimes. What if her dad wasn't just an abusive asshole, but far worse? But every time she'd look, nothing. Then one night in May 2009, this town name popped into her head. I grabbed out my laptop and I plugged in cold case Watertown, Wisconsin, and boom, all this stuff started coming up. Two teenagers with bright futures found murdered. The double homicide in one rural community has puzzled investigators for nearly 30 years. On August 10th, 1980, Tim Hack and Kelly Drew went missing. They were both 19. They had been at a wedding reception at a dance hall in rural Jefferson County, Wisconsin. Hack's Oldsmobile was still in the lot with his wallet inside and the doors locked. Local and state police mounted a massive search on land and by air. Many people in town helped with the search. For days, all they found were some pieces of Kelly Drew's clothes. They were strewn over miles on roads leading away from the dance hall. Two months after the teens disappeared, their decomposed remains were found in some thick woods. Hack had been stabbed. Drew was raped and strangled. The specter of the killings haunted Jefferson County for the next three decades. Everyone had a suspect, and strangers were eyed warily around town. Parents worried every time a child was a little late getting home. On anniversaries, the case would pop back up on the news and reporters would poke at old wounds. Tim Hack's father, Dave, has his own list of suspects. One thing I would really like to know who's not responsible because I always have suspicions. Hack also has hope. He hopes whoever kidnapped his son and Tim's sweetheart will see justice. In 2007, 27 years after the murder, Wisconsin cops took another look at the evidence and found viable DNA on Drew's clothing. In 2009, the state received a big federal grant for cold cases that had some chance of being solved. The Hack-Drew investigation was suddenly a priority again. And as I was reading the case, it, it all rang true. I mean, I remembered everything. It was like stepping, taking a step back in my past. And just all these flashes and memories were just come flooding back. I just remember myself sitting, going back at that time and sitting in, in the van, our van. And I remember sitting behind my dad, listening to him once again talk about the murders 
and him specifically saying, I bet you they're going to find him in a field. And I just remember looking at the back of his head and just thinking, huh. April was 11 years old at the time. Now, reading about the case, certain details came back to her. She'd seen pictures of the dance hall where the kids went missing. A dance hall, she remembered, where her dad had been a handyman. A dance hall right next to a campground where the family lived for a few months while they looked for a house to rent. And then there was the nose thing. My dad came home late in the evening he was muddy, dirty, and he had a, a bloody nose, a cut on his nose. And I believe he said it was due to hunting. Would that have been a surprising answer or not really? I just remember thinking I didn't know that it was hunting season. I didn't remember him hunting that really at all. One more thing came back to her. That fall, a few months after the murders, her dad pulled a familiar move. He came home with a U-Haul at truck, and we started packing. We started, I believe, in the morning, and we were finished by the evening, and we left in, well, it was when it was dark. We just, I mean, we just moved there. And, you know, here we're moving again. The more April read the more she couldn't escape the feeling that it all made sense. At the end of one story, she saw a contact. Investigators desperately want information. If you have any information, call the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office at 920- April wrote the number down and stared at it. She wanted to call, but not before talking to someone. So she called her younger sister, Janine. April says that her sister had suspicions too, but she warned April to think very hard about what she was doing. Because she knew the ramifications you know that this is you know our dad that we were talking about that's you know going against family and and what were you feeling on that front that's my producer jonathan menhivar um you know she, even though she was telling me think about it she actually pushed me to make that call does that make sense? Right. <laughs> she, I was kind of annoyed after the conversation. Here we think that our father has committed these crimes. How can you not think of turning him in? So I was just like, you know what? I'm making it. I'm calling. So April picks up the phone. It's a Thursday, about 9 p.m. Because I remember thinking, oh, I'm going to call up and I'm going to leave a message because this guy is not going to be in. And I call up, I get a lady, and... The lady puts April right through to the detective on the case, Chad Garcia of the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office. He's one of the guys you heard in the recording at the start of the show. And as I'm being put on hold, I'm thinking, oh my God, oh my God, what am I going to say? I wasn't expecting to talk to this guy. He's going to think I'm a nutcase. He's going to think I'm crazy. And when Detective Garcia got on the phone, I think those were my almost exact words. I said, you might think I'm crazy, or I might be sending you on a wild goose chase, but I think I have some information for you. I had gotten all these leads that went nowhere when a woman from another state calls and says she saw something on the internet and thinks it might be her father that's involved. 
This, as you probably guessed, is Chad Garcia. He's a former Marine and a very no-nonsense detective. He's the only cop I met while reporting the story who wore a jacket and tie to work. It had been almost two months since his office put out the call for tips. For the first couple weeks, his phone rang incessantly, and he pursued all leads. None of them went anywhere. By the time April called, the tips had slowed to a trickle. So, I mean, are you thinking that this is very credible from the outset? Like, what do you, what do you remember about her, her call? No, initially, no. So initially, when I get the start the phone call, and I get, okay, already it's nine after 9 p.m. Um, this thing hasn't been on the news for over a month. It's an out-of-state person that's accusing her own father. So initially from that alone, I'm like, no, this is incredible. This is another one of these wild goose chase types tips. But as I'm talking to her, I'm also firing up the computer and I'm looking through my list of suspects. I'm looking through names that pop out, that kind of stuff. So as she's giving information, I'm verifying the information she's giving. And this name that she's giving is there. It's in my top 80-some people of suspects. So it's like, okay, well, this person does exist. And it was somebody that was talked to and looked at. And it's still an active suspect. So that all adds up. All the stuff she's telling me about his past, that's all clicking. The next thing she talks about is book. So I jump on eBay, I order the book. A few days later, his used copy of Metamorphosis of a Criminal arrives, and Garcia dives in. The book purports to be a redemption tale, but it's not exactly heartwarming. Edwards writes about himself traveling gleefully all over America, chasing girls and committing crimes. He seems to revel in his use of violence. He talks about how much he liked to control women. He had a thing for brunettes. So Garcia goes back to the documents from the original case. He starts pulling interviews and reports from multiple agencies into a single searchable file. Um, I find where Edwards is named in two separate reports, talked to on one occasion and reported on another occasion, which were years apart. So there's stuff in there. And my boss agrees that that's the best tip we've had in years and that I should go forward with it. So this must have felt, I mean, are you thinking, you obviously don't know for sure it's him, but are you thinking, wow, this really seems like a very likely suspect, if not my actual murderer? Uh, it's enough that I, I definitely want his DNA because I have a DNA profile, so it's a very easy elimination if I'm able to obtain his DNA. I'll get to whether Garcia gets Ed Edwards' DNA soon enough, but I think it's worth pausing here to talk about how the cops missed Edwards in the first place. In the days after the teens went missing, investigators canvassed guests and workers from the dance hall, which is known as the Concord House. Edwards, the handyman, was among those questioned. A special agent from the state police talked to him. So they go talk to him. When they go talk to him, he's out in the barn shooting pigeons or whatever. Um, he's got some injury to his face. And he says, you know, basically, I've, I've never really been in the Concord house itself. I don't know who these people are. I don't know anything. Blah, blah, blah. Is shooting pigeons? Is that what was he doing exactly? Yeah, that's what he had told them. He was shooting pigeons in the barn. That was his way to explain the, the yeah. face injury. Yeah. That's, that's about it. So he doesn't really give a whole lot of information. They cross him off the list, basically, because he was just someone they had to talk to. Um, they don't have anything leading them to believe that he's involved in this at all, other than the fact that he worked out there. A big problem here is that there were two different agencies working the case, the state and the county, and they weren't communicating as well as you'd hope. This is 1980. The reports are all on paper, not computerized, and there was no central database for collating their findings. So if... The county did a bunch of reports and the state did a bunch of reports. The chances of me reading all the state reports or the state agent reading all my reports were very slim. So more or less, if I'm working the case with state agent Joe 
we'll meet for coffee and we'll talk about the case. Well, he's not going to remember every possible thing that he put in a report. So he's just going to tell me a few different things. So if I go and interview this handyman and I get nothing of use, that's what I'm going to tell state agent Joe is I went and talked to the handyman. He didn't really tell me anything. I crossed him off. And that's it. So he's never going to get my report. He's never going to know about the shooting pigeons, the, you know, the broken nose. He's never going to know that kind of stuff. It was only when Chad Garcia was looking at the decades-old file with the benefit of hindsight and computers that he started noticing things, like this detail from eight years after the murders. The county gets notified by the landlord that Edwards lived out at his place, was interviewed, and took off in the middle of the night or the next day. Suddenly, um, he had scared a couple off at gunpoint that was on the property, and he had gone over to have dinner at the landlord's house before, which overlooks where the bodies were dumped. All good information, but again, wasn't linked to the other report. I talked to that landlord, John Simons. He couldn't believe the authorities had missed Edwards. He thought all along that this handyman was the most obvious suspect, and he even went back to county cops in 1988 to say as much. But that lead, too, fell through the cracks. And no one with the state police or Jefferson County paid any more attention to Ed Edwards until April picked up her phone and called Chad Garcia. So when she calls and I look up the names and I see Edwards, I can pull both of those reports and go, oh, yeah, we've got something here. Cops like to say that luck is a major factor in solving murders, especially the ones that go cold. And here's where luck comes in for us. If the federal government doesn't offer that money to revisit cold cases, there are no TV news segments about Tim Hack and Kelly Drew in March 2009. April gets out of bed, does yet another Google search, finds nothing, goes back to lying awake, searching her mind for some other place she might be missing. Or let's say April has that premonition about Watertown any time before the case was reactivated and those stories appeared. Again, she finds nothing. Chad Garcia never gets her call. Ed Edwards never emerges as a suspect. None of us ever know his name. He just goes on living and eventually dying in obscurity. I certainly never would have met April, and she'd still be wondering if she'd just been crazy all along. Coming up, the goose chase takes us back to that trailer. That's right after this break. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Okay, so let's go back to March 2009. April makes that call to Chad Garcia, and then nothing. Days go by, then weeks. Enough time had gone by that I'm thinking to myself, okay, I'm a nutcase. I sent this guy on a wild goose chase. Um, Obviously, nothing has come out of it. 
you know, I, I, I've been assuming things wrong and I was wrong. And, um, what a horrible person to think that about your dad. But Garcia had seen enough to convince his boss that he needed to go visit Ed Edwards and get a sample of his DNA. That's how he ends up in that mobile home in Louisville, where Edwards is living with his wife, April's mom, Kay. Can we come in and talk to you for a few minutes? Sure. It's one month after April's call. And remarkably for our purposes, Garcia has a small tape recorder rolling the whole time. My plan is to do a very soft interview with him because I don't have any solid proof at this point. The DNA would be my proof, and I don't want to screw that up or potentially have him mess with evidence, um, have him do anything to destroy the case. So I'm going there with the mindset of having just a sit-down conversation with him. But you're still hoping you maybe can get it willingly? Yes. Just naively, why would a suspect ever give it to you? If, like, if you come to my door and I'm under suspicion for a crime, I think I wouldn't want to give you my DNA. Well, if you're innocent, then it's going to prove that you're innocent, and then we're done. Well, it's humid today. Yeah, yeah, this is... Uh, dog up. Does he know you're coming? Uh, I don't think so. Actually, no, I know he doesn't know we're coming because he had just pulled in with Kay with groceries. Yeah, his wheelchair was just going up the ramp as we pulled in. Oh, you're right, it's cooler. Oh, it's yeah. nice in here. Let's see, yeah. It's warm, huh? Inside the trailer, Garcia finds a very different man than the one he's read about. He's parked in his wheelchair in the trailer's messy living room. Kay sits next to him. He is obese and wheezing. A thin tube feeds oxygen from a nearby tank to his nose. Ron Fuhrer, the Wisconsin state agent who drove down there with Garcia, speaks first. He calls Edwards by his middle name, Wayne, which is how most people know him. Okay, Wayne, let, let me tell you who we are and why we're here. Okay, I'll do that. So it's the three of us making contact there and just explain what we're there for following up on this double homicide that occurred in Wisconsin. He had worked for the Concord House back then, just like to sit down and talk to him. We've gotten some new information that's developed. And just not the suspect approach, but more of the witness. You were there when this happened. We're just, you know, crossing off our T's and dotting our I's right now. I'm with the uh, Wisconsin Department of Justice. Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Okay. Long ways away. (laughs) And uh, the reason we're here is uh, we're working on some cold cases, and and your name came up in a case file. Oh, 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 1980. 29 years ago. Is he playing cool, like cooperating, or what's what's his response to that? Yes. Very, very cool, very laid back. Um, he's more than willing to talk, gives us little to no information that's of any value whatsoever, but takes a good hour and a half to do it. Did you uh, ever do any hunting while you were there at all? No. Uh, yeah, I used to go out there in the barn and shoot pigeons. Uh, Remember the big barn we had there? I remember that. I remember all those pigeons? Yeah, but whatever. For recreation, whatever. They would go out there and shoot pigeons. Eventually, they start probing a little deeper, watching Edwards for expressions as much as they're listening for responses. And he either can't remember details about the 1980 murder of two teens at the Concord House, or he's playing very dumb. What, what, we're, what we're following up on is that uh, those uh, two teenagers, the guy and the girl that disappeared, from the Concord House one night? The Concord House. Yeah. Concord House. Don't look at me. 
The sense from him that was he trying to get details out of you to see what you had? Absolutely. Yeah, he was trying to ask questions as much as he was answering them, if not more. You know, where were they found? What actually happened with this case? And, and I assume in that situation, you know that he's likely to do that, so you're not going to give him anything that might tell him that you know? Right. Right. The only thing I'm going to release is stuff you could find on the Internet or in the paper. Your last name is Edwards. Right. Tell me something. I'm curious. Uh, how in the world did you end up not getting involved in you guys coming here or whatever? What, what we're doing is going through this file. Completely. Okay. And, and you were interviewed. About half an hour in, Garcia starts to ask questions that cut closer to the bone. And Edwards, he seems scared. You can almost feel it in the silence. Do you recall at all these people that came out missing? I'm trying to... Two teenagers, 19-year-old, boy and girl. If I do, it's not a... I don't know. I gotta think about that. Uh, did you say come up missing? Okay. I was doing that floor up there. I was doing some carpentry work for him. Uh, no. Just they were they were at a wedding reception up at the dance hall early in August. And they disappeared. Car was left there. No. Yeah. No. As the interview continues, Edward's tactics shift. He decides to acknowledge some small details, harmless ones. Now you were interviewed by a, a couple of officers. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Okay. That barn that we I was shooting. Yes. Okay. There was. Edward just rambles. He spends a bunch of time talking about his ailments and the many medications he's taking. Take about 26 pills a day. Keep them all right here in the in the chart. <laughs> Do you recall um, injuring your nose at any time when you lived in Wisconsin? I've injured my nose. I couldn't tell you where, though. Matter of fact, I just did. <laughs> Matter of fact, they said, in x-ray, they said it had been broken once before. Well, I've had plastic surgery on it from cancer. Basically, uh, anyone that's giving any information about him is different than the information that he's giving. But he's sticking to his 1980 story. Do you get any kind of gut reaction to him in the interview? I mean, did, did were you any more or less convinced by your interactions? I, I do get a gut reaction just talking to him, that this guy definitely thinks he's smarter than everybody else. He definitely thinks that he... Um, can steer the conversation, can dictate what happens. And to have two people from another state travel that far to talk to you, I would be shocked to have that happen. And it didn't even seem to matter to him whatsoever that we had traveled that distance to talk to him if he was simply just a handyman and may have seen something, because that's something that normally you could do over the phone. So once this thing wraps up, as 
we could see that it's wrapping up. We're not getting anywhere. We're just spinning our wheels. It's at that point where I explained to him, hey, since you were there during that time frame when all this happened, what we're doing now because of DNA technology and everything is we're just eliminating anybody that had the potential to be there. So because of that, before we take off back to Wisconsin, I'd like to ask you for a sample of your DNA just to completely eliminate you from anything whatsoever. Um, we won't have to bother you again. That's it. Because it's not his jurisdiction, Garcia has also brought a detective from Louisville along to the trailer. And it's that cop who steps forward to explain what's about to happen. They asked me to ask you if we can have somebody come in and swab it inside your mouth and get a, D, a biological sample. I don't know if I'd go for that. It's not intrusive, and it's as much as it does to find a suspect, it also eliminates the other 40 or 50 people as possible suspects. You don't have anything to hide, shouldn't worry about it. That's Kay in the background. She's saying, if you don't have anything to hide, you shouldn't worry about it. I've listened to this recording many times, and every time I pause on this moment, and this woman, the long-suffering wife who has no idea when she wakes up that morning that she's about to be shown an escape hatch. Suspects. If you don't have anything to hide, shouldn't worry about it. No, that's true, but... Uh... And at which point he changes the position in his seat and says... I've watched a lot of those shows on, on TV and I just, I don't, I don't like that idea. I don't want to be wrongfully accused or convicted. And looking over at Kay, you could see there was a look on her face like, okay, this is weird. When you, when you do that, I don't know, it puts me in a little different frame of mind. It puts me on, uh, say, say fearful, okay? I mean, I don't know, well, uh, there, I don't know what I'm trying to say. Um, Edward says he needs time to consider what they're asking, but it's not working for him, so he tries a new approach. Well, I've been making arrangements to get myself cremated because I don't have that much longer to go, so I can I give you some ashes. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I have to think about that. Well, unfortunately, these gentlemen don't have a lot of time. We're from Wisconsin, so we can't. Right, well, I mean, you're here at, uh, uh, you know, get back with me, and you can do it, I'm sure, in that well, case, and send it to them or whatever. I mean, it is. Would you be willing to do it now or no? No. No, I got to think about that. So at that point, the Louisville detective whipped out the warrant and said, no, you will be supplying the DNA, and he had an analyst outside of the trailer. But under the circumstances, I did arm myself with a search warrant. A search warrant? Okay. The search warrant basically is just describing exactly what I've said. We're just going to take a DNA sample. And it's just to keep us from having to bother you again. Now that we're going to take it. Yep. Finally, Edwards relents. They call in an analyst who's been waiting outside. She swipes the inside of Edwards' cheek, places a swab into a plastic sheath, and hands it to Garcia. Thank you very much. The only other question I really got, Wayne, is do the names Kelly Drew or Tim Hack mean anything to you? No. Say it again. Kelly Drew and no. Tim Hack? No. Those people you ever remember meeting at any point? No. Name them. Ring a bell. Tim Hack would be a red-haired farm boy, you know, six foot or so, slender. Kelly's brunette, fairly tall, probably 5'8"-ish, both around 19 years old. No. Okay. 
Well, thank you very, very much thank for your you. time. Thank you. Yeah, Take care. Hope you uh, hope hope you feel better. Hope you feel better. I can't imagine what the conversation was like in that trailer after the cops left. What outrageous lie Edwards cooked up to explain what had just happened. Kate didn't want to talk to us, but in her interviews with police, it's obvious she blocked out huge portions of her life. And when the cops finally caught up to her husband, she saw it as a gift. She told them, It's like just before this happened, I said, God, I can't take it anymore. You've got to do something. I just can't handle it anymore. Back in Wisconsin, Garcia's DNA test jumps to the front of the line at the state lab. Five weeks later, he has his result. He goes back to Kentucky, this time with Rick Lewell, another state agent and an arrest warrant issued by the district attorney of Jefferson County, Wisconsin. They returned to the mobile home park, a little more wary of Edwards this time around. Which is why there were seven people. Yeah, if, if I was just to go arrest somebody, it's usually two people that go arrest somebody. Edwards put up no resistance. Garcia later told me he acted as if he'd been expecting them. Louisville cops wheel Edwards out the door, down the ramp, and into a waiting van. Once he's gone, Garcia, Luell, and a small team from Louisville Metro search the trailer. They find a photo album from 1980, including shots of the family at Watertown's July 4th parade. Boxes filled with cassette tapes that Edwards had recorded and labeled in a chicken scrawl with dates and names. An array of fake documents, social security cards and birth certificates, and IDs that claimed Edwards was a PI. Another said he was a bail enforcement agent. One said special investigator, whatever that is. They also find a laptop, and when they look at the search history, they can see that since Garcia's first trip to the trailer, Edwards had been reading about the Hack Drew case. He'd also studied up on DNA test results. A few hours later, Garcia sees Edwards again. It's around 9 p.m. This time, in a small, dingy interrogation room at Louisville Metro Homicide. Garcia and Llewell sit across from Edwards. He's in his wheelchair. He's got a cast on his arm. He seems confused, but not nervous. I don't know. I'm starting to feel kind of like an idiot. Uh... Well, it's just so freaking unreal, guys. For the first hour, Edwards is just making small talk. Then, for a while, he plays dumb again. It takes us probably an hour and a half, two hours, to finally get him to admit that he knew who Kelly was and that he had consensual sex with her. Um, that's about it. So that, that goes two to three hour point where we're just getting nowhere, we're spinning our wheels. What's he saying when you say to him that, you know, we have this DNA sample before, while he's denying it, what's, what's his explanation? He's not, he's not giving an explanation. What he does, he tries to mislead you, he tries to redirect you, and he had this tell. So what he would do is when he was getting ready to really lie is he would lift his arm, like he would stretch his arm out, like, you know, you're trying to catch your breath or something, and then he would lie through his teeth. And, and uh, he did that repeatedly. After about, you know, a couple hours, two, three hours, we take our break, and he gets some water or medication, whatever it was. And at that point, um, Brian Nunn, who was a supervisor of the Louisville Homicide Squad, said, would you mind if we 
took a crack at it. And I said, no, absolutely, because we weren't getting anywhere. We'd gotten stuck at a point where we just weren't getting any further. So Brian went in with another one of the Louisville detectives to talk to him. They interviewed him for, I don't know, say five or 10 minutes. And this detective that went in there couldn't stand it, couldn't stand his lying, couldn't stand his bullshit, and finally just threw up his hands and said, you think you're smarter than us? You're not. We got you. Basically, you know, you're a lying piece of crap throws up his hands and walks out of the interview room. I, I think this is just a game for you. And he's right. Your DNA was there. Yes, so you can you no, wait, explain it. You're just thing. a thing. Wait, wait, you're not in charge. You're talking. And I won't be in my father because I thought you pre had this for three and a half hours. For eight hours until 5 a.m., with only a few short breaks, in part so Edwards could take his medicine, Garcia Lowell and sometimes another Louisville cop grill him on the murders. He never confesses. They never did get the truth. In fact, Edward says several times that he's never killed anyone, ever. The final story he tells them is maybe the most ridiculous and confusing of all. He seems to be saying that Tim Hack came out of the dance with two other guys and caught him and Kelly having sex. For some reason, these other guys turn on Tim and beat him to death. Then they kill Kelly because she won't stop screaming. Edward says nothing and never would, because he's no snitch. If you're feeling like April's kind of disappeared from the story, that's the way she was feeling too. She now hadn't heard from Garcia in over a month, since just before the first trip to Louisville. And Garcia didn't call her after the arrest either. She'd been avoiding the news, so she didn't know her dad had been arrested until the next day when she got an email from her brother. April jumped right in the car and took off for Louisville to be with her mother. I was with my daughter. I was going to go be with my mom. And the papers were saying that the DNA was a match to the crimes committed in Wisconsin. And I didn't want to even believe the papers because I know how, you know, things can be misconstrued or what have you. So I called Detective Garcia's cell phone. And I thought I wanted to hear it from him. And... I was driving down the interstate and I called him on the cell phone. He answered and I asked him and he said, April, there's, there's no mistake. It's a, there's a match. He goes, I'm 99.9% sure. And, um, I remember kind of starting to hyperventilate and kind of going to not so much of a panic attack, just like it really hit me. Like, there's no mistake, he is a killer. And not only did he kill those two people, he has killed so many people. I had, And I literally had to pull off. I was right by an exit, pulled off to an exit, pulled into a gas station and got out of the car because I didn't want my daughter to see me in the condition I was in. And I used the disguise of pumping gas and I just tried to get myself under control. I remember my heart clenching and it wasn't a pretty experience, but that's when it really hit me that there was no mistake that all my wishing was to no good, that he was everything that I had suspected and more.
April refused to speak with reporters after her dad was arrested. She talked to some cops and then just went back to her life. I met her seven years later. It was April 21st, 2016. She came to meet me grudgingly in a law office in Ashtabula, Ohio. Her leg was in a brace because she'd hurt herself at the gym. She sat in a chair with her head in her hand. Talking about her dad gave her a migraine. After her dad's arrest, April wanted nothing more to do with him. Ed Edwards sat in prisons in Wisconsin and Ohio and eventually confessed to murdering three other people over decades. A young couple parked in a car and another young man who was close to the Edwards family. But then something even more bizarre happened. A retired cop in Montana latched onto the story of Ed Edwards and took it in a wild direction. He became convinced that Edwards didn't just kill these five people. He started to tell the world that Ed was responsible, somehow, for every unsolved murder you can think of. I believe some of the most famous murders in the last 60 years. Lacey Peterson, the Black Dog, Jean-Benet Ramsey, the Zodiac, were created by this one man, Edward Edwards. I'd initially fallen into this story through this Montana cop and his crazy theories. And I was curious what April thought about it all. She ignored me for months. And then one day I got a Facebook message from April that said she changed her mind. He pissed me off, she said, because it wasn't just this one guy anymore. Online, his theories had spread and mutated. People speculated that Edwards might have killed JonBenet Ramsey or that he was the monster behind Atlanta's child murders. Guess what else? In making a murderer, and of course, podcasts get in on the action. That's him in the hallway behind the lawyers. Are they and sure it's him? They know it's him. Yeah, that is him because you'll see there's... Yeah, he's like yeah. this big dude. He has a real pointy, kind of downward-facing nose. Good morning, everyone. I'm Megan Kelly, and we begin today with Ed Edwards. Yep. It even escalated to the Today Show. Ever hear of him? Me neither. But he is potentially one of the most prolific serial killers of our time. So there was April seeing all this stuff spread. Her dad's story feeding the true crime industrial complex we all live with. It bothered her to hear her dad's name connected to JonBenet Ramsey or the Black Dahlia. But she also knew her dad was capable of anything. Over the next few months, we kept talking, on the phone, by text, and on subsequent visits. The story I set out to write about a killer and a cop morphed into something very different. A partnership with that killer's daughter. So now, April and I are on this weird dual mission together. We want to find out if her father killed any other people, but we're also trying to rid the world of the boogeyman version of Edward Wayne Edwards. I'm hoping you're going to work your expertise to get this podcast out there and get the truth out there. I expect a lot out of you. <laughs> I'm not going to promise you that we'll solve any murders on this show, even though April thinks we might. And if I'm being honest, I sometimes hope we can too. Because there's plenty of reason to believe that Ed Edwards killed more people than he's ever confessed to. I sense you shaking your head. I realize just by making this show, we're participating in the myth-making of Edward Wayne Edwards. But we're pushing on anyway, because April needs to find answers. That's important to her. And now it's become important to me too. Even if, as Jonathan pointed out, the answers we find might only make things worse for her. I, I'm, I'm wondering too about the possibility that... So like Josh is saying, it's been nine years since you first started this. But there's the possibility that nothing is going to come of any of it. I know. I know. Like one of my headaches are coming on now. Actually, it's been coming on. Um, today's a more difficult day. Um, you're right. Nothing may come of this. Um, 
This is kind of my last resort. There might have to be a day that I just tell myself that you gotta let it go. Just live with not having accomplished what I wanted to accomplish. You know, um, a lot of people don't care. You know, it's in the past. The people who care are the victims' families and myself. Um, it's really not important to anyone else. So, you know, they don't... I know nothing might come with this. Coming up on this season of The Clearing, something does come of this. Hello, listeners. My life has certainly been anything but good. Exciting, yes. Dangerous, yes. Honest, no. We know for a fact that they're both here and they're both there at the same time. Well, nearly identical murders. Nearly identical murders occur. We know for a fact. You're a very intriguing fellow, and I'm very intrigued by you, Mr. Edwards, and I can do one of two things. I can give you a lot of recognition. <laughs> if you're looking for another book deal, no, no. Hollywood, no. I've been offered those, no, I'm not interested. Okay. Your father also killed three kids Bullshit. in 1955 in Bullshit. Chicago. <laughs> Bullshit. Yes, he did. No, he didn't. Bullshit. I would stake my life on it. My dad does not kill kids. Unless, unless that child would have hurt one of us. And it doesn't make me a psycho, Lucille, trying to find out a little bit about my life. Are you going to keep all these records about yourself and give them to um, April? I'm going to tell April everything there is to know about me. Well, I don't think that is normal. I don't think that is normal in a person. And all of us just froze, and I quick turned around, and he had a black handgun in his hand, and he still had his arm raised in our direction, like he never lowered the gun. I, I have a temper like my father. I've lost control of my temper. Um, but there again, I choose not to go past a point. You lose your temper, you're not murdering people. Right. Right. Yeah. That would that'd be a hell of a twist at the end of the show. <laughs> Josh, seriously? Clearing is a production of Pineapple Street Media in association with Gimlet. It's produced by Jonathan Menhivar and me. I'm Josh Dean. Our associate producers are Josh Gwynn, Dina Kleiner, and Elliot Adler. Editing by Joel Lovell. Our fact checker is Ben Phelan. Our theme song is Modafinil Blues by Matthew Deere. Music clearance by Anthony Roman. The episode was mixed by Jonathan Menhivar and Hannes Brown. Special thanks to Christina DeJosa and Ariana Martinez. 
Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky are the executive producers at Pineapple Street. And since I'm running out of tape, that's the end of everything. <laughs>